Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for um, your faithfulness and um, just your joy. Uh, like I said in the email, it was, it was a real joy to prepare for this class. Um, regardless of what you know, was coming from the Lord, I was just thinking about you guys and my heart just got overwhelmed with it. And I just loved thinking about being with y'all, sharing in the joy of God's word and the power that is expressed in his word. So, all right. So last week we jumped into John chapter 10 in the midst of our I am saying series. It's hard to say sometimes. Um, And we we began in John chapter 10 with Jesus talking to the Pharisees, if you remember, coming out of John chapter 9, where they had just kicked the, the man who had been healed from blindness uh, out of the synagogue. And Jesus says that, and he told the crowd there, he's like, I am the door. He said, I am the, I'm the way, I am the entrance into understanding what all of this 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 religious system was supposed to be about. The whole Old Testament was meant to point to. I'm the key that unlocks it. I'm the the keystone, if you would. Um, The foundation of all that understanding. So i got a quick quiz for you um, to kind of drive this point home. How many of you know um, what a chiasm is? Big literary term. I told you last week I'm not very grammary. Um, but a chiasm, right, is, um, and Nick, you probably have to correct me, but that's okay. Feel free. It's a literary device where you have two or more clauses, and those clauses are balanced against one another, kind of balanced against one another to make a point, but they're mentioned in reverse order. So you have a clause A here, a clause B, a clause C, and then you have the clause B1 that's balanced with clause B, and then clause a1 that's balanced with the clause A. Is that close enough? Thank you. Anyway, lots of the Psalms. The Psalms are, are prevalent with the chiastic structure, chiasm structure. Anyway, um, in the Old Testament, how many books are in the Pentateuch? Five, right? It's in its name, Penta. Right? We have this, this teaching of five books. Okay, here, here is our chiasm, right? You have Genesis. You have Deuteronomy. Both of these books close with a patriarch blessing the 12 tribes and then dying before they enter the promised land. Okay? Then you have Numbers and Exodus. So there are Exodus and Numbers, um, which are almost identical in the amount of words that they have. I think one of them 16, 7, 14, and one of them 16, 600 something. It's really, really, really close, as well as the stories that overlap between Exodus and Numbers. So what does that leave in the middle? Leviticus, right? Third book would be the middle of this chiasm, this, this pyramid sort of structure, but typically on its side when you see it in literary devices. All right, so... Leviticus is the center of the Pentateuch. So how do we understand what Leviticus is about? 
Leviticus has 37 times where it says the Lord said or the Lord spoke. Thus the Lord spoke. And then to Moses, to Aaron, to Moses and Aaron, how it said 37 times. Right. So if you divide 37 in half, that's 18 and a half. Guess what number 19 is? Number 19 is Leviticus chapter 16. You know what Leviticus chapter 16 is about? The Day of Atonement. So the center of the Pentateuch and the center of the center of the Pentateuch is about the Day of Atonement. How do we unlock what the Day of Atonement is all about? We have to walk through the door of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, through Jesus, we understand that those bulls and goats, they could never satisfy. They repeated over and over, year after year, year after year, until Jesus came. And then he put that aside because he was the atoning sacrifice for us, right? So just one small picture. The, the Old Testament is full of it, full of ways that you can, you can better understand. You can see a fuller presentation, a complete presentation of what it's talking about. So Jesus says that he is the door to the true sheepfold. He also warns us that there are thieves and robbers. There are, um, welcome back, Cody, been a long time. Um, There are those that come in and they come over the walls and they're they're not out for the good, right? He he said in another place in in Matthew, I'm going to get it wrong, but I'll try, 23, He's talking to the crowd and he says, watch out for those scribes and Pharisees. And, you know, they, they load up their people with all these heavy burdens. And they, they tell them to do all these things, but they don't even lift a finger to help them out. And Jesus balances that by saying, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My Burden is light. Why? Why is Jesus' burden light? Why is Jesus' yoke easy? Because he's carrying the burden for and with us. If you think of the yoke of the oxen, Jesus is right there beside you. But he's like, he's like babe the blue ox compared to your little, um, I can't think of a little small calf. Um, but the illustration that babe the blue ox will be carrying the calf as he plows the ground, as he breaks the, the hard hearts. He does the work, right? So then not only does he warn us about the thieves and the robbers, he tells us that he is going to save his sheep. Not only save them, but he's going to give them life and not just life, Life in abundance. And so there's the promise, right? Jesus has life for his sheep. And he is going to give it to them in abundance. Okay, so we need to ask the question, how are you going to do this, Jesus? What is the means? How is this going to get done that we get eternal life? So that's where we go back into John 10. And we get verses 11 through through 18. And we're going to look at exactly... How Jesus gives his, his sheep eternal life. Um, we're also going to look at, you know, 
why Jesus says he has other sheep that are not of this fold. And then the, the third thing we're going to look at is authority. And if we have time, we're going to get to look at what it really means to have abundant life. All right. So number one, let's read John 10, 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I Lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are so very excited this morning as we celebrate Palm Sunday, uh, the beginning of the week of Passover, that where we have the most great, the greatest promise ever given, fulfilled. God, that you would be um, our God. That you would have a people that would be your own. That you would send your own son to die for us because you love us. Because you chose us because you love us. God, we want to see clearly today what Jesus is saying about him being the good shepherd. So open our eyes, God. Let us hear your words. As your sheep, we want to hear your voice speaking to us this morning. God, be glorified. Um, We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the primary answer to the question of how Jesus will give his sheep abundant life is that Jesus is the good shepherd. But what does that mean? What does it being a good shepherd mean? First point is that he lays his life down for his sheep. Okay, Jesus, yeah, but that's, that's kind of understood. You know, we, had, we have a shepherding culture and, and um, yeah, the shepherd's supposed to defend his sheep. He's supposed to risk life and limb to, to defend his sheep. Now, yeah, we, we kind of get that, right? But we need to understand that, that as Jesus presented this, he's, he's planting seeds, right, into his sheep's ears. They're going to they're gonna be weeds that, or they're going to be um, little sprouts that get stolen away by the enemy if they're not his sheep. But in his sheep's ears, he starts to plant this seed of, I'm laying my life down. And they're going to they're gonna see it, right, after, after he is crucified and resurrected, much like the men on the, on the road to Emmaus get their eyes opened. Right to everything that was in Moses and the prophets, and, and it comes to life for them. Well, these are some of the statements that also come to life um, for the apostles and, and for, for Paul as he carries the word to the ends of the earth at that time, and for us. 
These are words that, that plant in us and we start to see them grow and, and flourish in us. J.C. Ryle says, Jesus' death was not the death of a martyr who sinks over at, at last, by overwhelmed by his enemies, but the death of a triumphant conqueror who knows that even in dying, he wins for himself, his people, a kingdom and a crown of glory. This is one important death. But he weighs it against the hired hand here, right? He sets it against kind of like a, a chiasm. He wants to show the difference. Here's the, here's the good shepherd. But compared to the hired hands, and once again, he would be pointing back to the scribes and the Pharisees here, calling them the hired hands. He says, he who is a hired hand is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus wept over these sheep, right? He knew that they were a shepherd. Or they, were, they were sheep without a shepherd. We read last week in Ezekiel 34, and it goes on to say that God will provide a shepherd who will protect and provide for, who will care for, who will bind up the wounded. And he will be a shepherd unto his, into God's people. But the hired hand, he doesn't care. He's just there to make a buck. Right? And as soon as, soon as trouble comes, as soon as um, there is an adversary that shows up, he's out of there. And this Pharisees would be in the same way. As long as they could find followers who would praise them, as long as they would have followers that would be dedicated to their thoughts and their ideas, he was all about it. And so I want to warn and, and caution us as well. Anytime you have an opportunity to give advice or counsel or even an opportunity to make correction in the midst of a, a relationship with one of your brothers and sisters or your children, or husband, wife, be careful. Be careful that you don't immediately jump to your opinions. Point them first to the good shepherd. Point them first to the one whose words they need to hear. And guess what? They will hear it because they are his sheep. So be diligent in, in giving, uh, giving advice and counsel. Go to the word first. How does the word carry the weight of this situation? And how can we be intentional about applying the word and the counsel that we give, the discipline that we give? All right. So not only is Jesus the good shepherd and the, the hired hands are running away, Jesus next says that I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So like a good shepherd, Christ knows all of his believing people. What a freedom there is in knowing that Jesus knows us. I have that question highlighted in your notes. This is what peace does it bring to your heart to know that he knows you? 
He knows your name. He knows your family. He knows your circumstances. He knows your history and your experiences. He knows your trials. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. He knows everything about you. All these things, Jesus is perfectly acquainted with you. And he knows you and calls you his own. So at the same time that that his knowledge is perfect, there's nothing in you that drew God to you. There's nothing in you that Jesus said, oh, wow, look at that guy. Man, he's really smart. He's great. No, nothing. No, no attractiveness. No decision-making. No smarts. You know, there's no talents that you have that drew God to you. God chose to make you Christ's solely because he chose to love you. There's no condition that God bases his selection of you upon. Because conditions change, right? Smarts change, right? I'm going through this now. I've learned that uh, every phone number I've, I have remembered have come from a date somewhere close to where I got my first smartphone. I mean, honestly, it's if, you, if I knew your number at that time before I got a smartphone, I can still recall it perfectly. Afterwards, not a chance. My wife says it. But I think I had that before I had the smartphone, so kind of crosses the line there. That's it. I, don't, I can't. I, I have given up that ability, and I've given it to the smartphone. I've given it away. Take away my smartphone. I don't have your number. I promise you. And so many other categories, right? Um, just... Ability to uh, remember simple words that I used to know. Oh, where did that go? It hides in the brain somewhere. Um, so we are each ebbing and flowing with talents and appearances and giftings. So don't think for a moment that God based his love based on something in you or a decision that you made. We're so fickle. We're so blown by the wind at so many times. Um, that you just let a stiff breeze come and, and physical ailment blast on us for months on end. And we're like, man, why did I choose this? What am I thinking? God, where are you? God says, I didn't choose you because things are go well and things are go, you know, according to the American dream. I chose you because I love you. And I love you. So Jesus gives it an even bigger exclamation point right there at the end. He says, not only do I know my sheep and my sheep know me, he says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Therefore, as Jesus' sheep, we have been brought in to the grandest relationship in all the universe. Nowhere else is there greater love or communion so sweet than in the Godhead. Jesus boldly declares that he is just as bound to his Father 
as He is bound to you. How secure you're feeling now? You gonna go anywhere? If you're His sheep, you're not wandering off. You're not turning your back. You're His sheep. He's bound to you just as He is bound to the Father. What excitement does that bring to your life to know that Jesus knows you that intimately? That freedom to be who you really are in his presence. And that's the freedom that grows us into community. As we see each other's warts and strengths and weaknesses, we love one another as Christ loved us. Jesus goes on and he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. There was other sheep that were not part of this small Jewish community. This small Jewish sheepfold. They were out there, and they were Jesus's. He must bring them in. Do you see yourself in this passage? Because guess what? Most of you, I dare say, is who he's talking about also. You are the other sheep that Jesus must bring into the fold. So how's he going to do this? What's, what's his means and method of of bringing these other sheep into the fold. Jesus would declare at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, and he would say, all authority has been given to me. I pass it along to you. Go, make disciples. Go bring my sheep in. They will hear my voice. They will come as you proclaim me to them. As you proclaim my words, my power, my resurrection. Start here in Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that reverberation is still going on today. And so you too hear that, that Lakeview Christian Center. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Don't get bound up. In this fold, know that that God brings and ordains meetings at gas stations and meetings in grocery stores and and meetings at work, meetings at the playground. God ordains these things so they can hear Jesus' voice through you. And if they're his, it's their time, they're going to come. So be faithful and and submitting yourself, as we said earlier, and let the good shepherd speak primarily through you. Show that faithfulness and that love. So Jesus says that, that they will listen to his voice. How sure is Jesus that the sheep are going to listen? It's irresistible. They will Hear my voice and follow. So in the same way that that I mentioned our need to guide our hearts, 
I just said to Jesus' voice, we need to cultivate our own hearing daily. Right? We need to be insistent that we are slowing down, having time that where we can hear the voice of Jesus by the power, by the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have this cultivation of hearing, much as God had to do for Elijah in the cave. Well, it's not in the tornado or the fire, the, the big show. It's in the still, small voice. Right? It's, it's in that, that voice in your heart that gives you clarity. It says, how about you don't present yourself in this, in this circumstance? But lay yourself aside and just see how you can serve. You may be right. You may be in the right. But how about you just set that aside and push forward to serve this person? Listen for his voice. He's always speaking. He is indwelling us. and He's always wanting to grow us into his own image. It takes time and it takes intentionality to cultivate listening. But it, it takes submitting and knowing his word as well. And meditating upon it. We meditate upon his word so that it hides itself in our hearts. And those are the things the Holy Spirit draws upon. You remember that passage? You remember that? You're, it's oftentimes now I'm taking some time to, to go through the Psalms and pray daily through the Psalms uh, for all the requests that I have. So I use um, a Psalm a day to guide those prayers. Anyway, oftentimes throughout the day, I will find something happened that was directly connected to the psalm that I read that day and was praying through. Directly. The Holy Spirit says, here you go again. Here's another gift from me. Right? So Jesus further says that there will be one flock. that He's going to bring those that are outside this fold He's going to bring them in and there will be one flock. Notice that he did not say one fold. It's going to be one flock. It's going to look different, but they're all going to be his. It's not going to be homogenous. They're all going to be his. Some are going to come from a Jewish background. Some are going to come from a pagan background. Some are going to be white. Some are going to be black. Some are going to be rich. Some are going to be poor. Over and over again, Jesus says that there will be one flock. And this one flock will have one shepherd. This vision of unity in the words of one flock and one shepherd prepares the reader for the rest of the New Testament. This unity receives major treatment in almost every other New Testament book. It's on display for us to see in the book of Acts. It's nailed home powerfully in the book of Ephesians. And then it's the foundation for triumphant people in the book of Revelation. We are one flock with one shepherd. This unity is the power Christ has to show the world who he really is. Because of the way that we love one another are unified but he doesn't stop there. He says, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life 
that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Jesus has authority to lay down his life. This was no accident. This was no product of circumstances that, hey, they got enough people together and they're able to force Jesus' hand into jail. They were able to force him to stand trial. They were able to force him to go to the cross. This point is easy to rush past. Jesus says he has the authority to lay down his life. We must never suppose for a moment that Jesus had no power to prevent his sufferings. And that he was delivered up to his enemies and crucified because he could not help it. The treachery of Judas, the armed band of priest servants, the enmity of scribes and Pharisees, the injustice of Pontius Pilate, the cruelty of the Roman soldiers, the scourge, the nails, the spears, the cross on which he hung. All these could not have harmed a hair of Jesus' head unless he had allowed them. It's true that Jesus' enemies conspired against him and killed him. But if that's all that happened, it's unclear how his death could be understood as anything more than a martyr's death. That is not all that happened. Jesus' death on the cross was a God-ordained sacrifice whose significance is proclaimed throughout the scriptures. Went to Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and he came up with these four categories. He says, Jesus' death on the cross is a sacrifice that's modeled off the Levitical sacrifices. And Hebrews 9.26 says, He has appeared once for all, the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. It is a propitiation or a removal of the wrath of God that we deserve. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. His sacrifice on the cross is reconciliation, bringing us back into the fellowship with God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Then fourthly, Jesus' death on the cross is redemption. It is redemption because sinners are in bondage to sin and Satan. We need Someone to redeem us or ransom us. Mark 10.45 says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But Jesus doesn't stop there, right? He doesn't just say, I lay my life down the sheep. Right? Because we understood that. We said early on, Yeah, Jesus, we know. You're the shepherd. You own the sheep. They're valuable to you, so you, you protect them against the wolf. You jump in front of a wolf. They fight a bear, a lion, whatever it is. You're going to do it. 
But he doesn't just say that I will lay my life down. He says, and I will take it up again. What? You're going to what? And it's at this point that Jesus backs everyone, including us, into a corner. And we have to make a decision right here at this point of Jesus' statement. This man is either a liar that is out of his mind thinking that he can take up his life again once he's dead. The dead don't take up their own lives. They're dead. Or he is the incarnate son of God and has authority from God to lay down his life and to take it up again. And this is the choice. This is the decision. This is the reason why the, the, uh, the Pharisees or Pharisees don't see, as we said last week, rise up against him again. In verses 19, 20, and 21. And want to throw him out. He's a demon. How in the world can someone say that? And the others would say, but how in the world can someone heal someone who's blind? And, and he would be applying the Old Testament. He'd be drawing the message of, of Isaiah 53 and washing it over the situation. He is that suffering servant. So he says, at the end of that, he says that I have this charge from the Father. I have this command to lay down my life and to take it up again from the Father. Jesus must lay his life down and take it up again. This is the plan and the will of God. It is important for us to look at the crucifixion from God's perspective. This assures us that no part of Jesus' sacrifice took place outside of God's plan. Jesus has taught us that the sacrificial death of the shepherd, when it occurs, must not be taken as an occurrence of fate or merely as a tragedy perpetrated by misguided men, but as the Father's plan. Part of the son's obedience to that plan is his perfect awareness that he lays down his life of his own accord. The authority Jesus has received from his father sanctions not only his death, but his own resurrection. So at one are the father and the son in this plan that when he rises from the dead, Jesus takes up his life again and nothing occurs other than what glorifies the Father. Every aspect of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is done so that it glorifies and brings glory to the Father. Every picture of salvation that we have in each one of our lives is done as we apply that life, death, and resurrection in our own lives by the power of the Holy Spirit to glorify the Father. So, Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep, but not just lays it down, takes it up again. And this is why God loves him. But now we have answered the question of how Jesus is going to give his sheep life and abundant life. So let's quickly look at what abundant life is. That clock is against me right now. So Jesus told us that he calls his sheep and they will hear him. He will save them and have abundant life. 
Abundant life is, number one, first of all, not limited to economics, academics, or social standing. Please do not define the abundant life of Christ according to your checkbook, according to your Facebook status, according to the image in the mirror. Eh, that is not an abundant life. That is a constricted life. It will choke you out. You will find yourself floundering. An abundant life is an ordered life. It is a life lived according to the way that God designed us to live in Genesis 1 and 2 and expounds upon it further and gives us clarity throughout the rest of the scriptures. It's a life that we live according to God's plan. It's a life that is spiritual. The abundant life in every area of our lives has a a spiritual component to it. This is why Jesus taught us to pray for the Father's kingdom come here on earth now as it is already in heaven. That kingdom is a spiritual reality surrounding us every day. It's why Jesus chooses such ordinary things like bread, water to highlight, right? How ordinary is bread? We see it all day, every day. There, it's in the cupboard, the bread box. You know, water surrounds us, especially living in southeast Louisiana. Water surrounds us. We see it all the time. But Jesus says there's particular times, there's particular moments when you have bread that I enter that, that moment. I am there with you as you join together in communion, in relating to one another, and I'm with you as y'all partake the bread. And that moment becomes holy. That moment becomes something that, that draws people together. Baptism is the same way. It's just water. We pour it out of a, a faucet up there. It's the same water that comes to the, the water fountain. But... In that moment that we sit here and we declare that here is one who was dead and has been raised to new life. In that moment, as they are, they are passed down by the power of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, raised to new life, that water becomes holy in that moment. Not, not holy water. No, not fictitious, made up, um, trying to, to add emotion to it. No. God God uses ordinary things to come in extraordinary ways. As you open your house, your neighbors come over and they enjoy fellowship with you. Or or it could be be some of your your church family that come over. There are times that God just opens that door and it becomes holy. It becomes real and and there is a, a spiritual drawing to it. As we mentioned earlier, the gas station, the grocery store. The park at the playground that you're, you were there with your kids. God uses those opportunities because all of life has a spiritual element to it. And as we draw upon the abundant life, it will take moments of those and, and they will come to life. Thirdly, it is fruitful. The abundant lives are fruitful lives. These are lives where love abounds in joy with peace, full of patience, walked out in kindness, bursting with goodness, 
displayed in faithfulness, handled with gentleness, and guided by self-control. Those are lives that the world will take notice of and ask, what is the reason you have so much hope in you? And lastly, the abundant life is worship. Right? The abundant life is being called by God so graciously. Because God called you. God knew you. God chose you in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to have this abundant life. God calls us. And so we, much like the blind man in John 9, Jesus heard that he had been cast out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. You see the transaction of the good shepherd and his sheep about to hear his voice? It is he who is speaking to the blind man. The blind man's ears were open and he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This is the effect of the words of Jesus penetrating our hearts in salvation, in ongoing fruitfulness, in the abundant life that he has given us to live. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, God, that uh, we have your words before us, God, that we have um, the testimony of Jesus loving us, drawing us, um, calling us by name. God, thank you. We love you. We go now and we want to continue this worship, Lord God, as we go into the, the service this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.